My men gather close to me and I close my eyes, thinking of what our best move would be when the gentle voice of Captain Keogh cuts into my thoughts. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. All I can see is their feathers dancing. I see the pain. I see something in their faces I've never seen in war. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Captain Kehoe pauses as though God may answer back. I open my eyes, raise my rifle, and return to the edge of the top of the ridge, looking down the slope we have just escaped from. I began firing at anything that moves, drowning out the captain's word. All I hear is thunder. And so what I found really interesting is when you start going through all our linguistics, like there is, there's no word in any indigenous language for wild. Like that doesn't, that doesn't, it doesn't exist. The closest thing we have is home. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am happy to be joined by Angie Alita Newell, author of the novel, All I See is Violence. Like, it's like, whoa, 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 like, let's back this up a little bit. Like, what, what did that feel like for those people? Like, and by feeling, perhaps it resonates deeper into your subconscious, and maybe we won't repeat those mistakes. Angie Alita Newell belongs to the Lidley Koo First Nation from the Decho, the place where two rivers meet. A trained historian, she blends a tradition of oral stories with academic history and holds university degrees in English literature, creative writing, and First Nations history with an emphasis on colonialism. Today, I'll be talking to her about her debut novel, All I See is Violence. I'm really excited about your book. I've already interviewed you once and I'll be interviewing you again. So I'm so glad that I can um, help talk about, about your, your novel. Um, but before we start talking about the book, I do want to ask you, can you tell me a little bit about your nation, the Lidley Q Nation, First Nation? Uh, give us a little background of it. So that's located in Fort Simpson, the Northwest Territories. That's the Boreal Forest, or also known as where Santa Claus lives. So we're going up to the North Pole. Well, I'm part of the Dene linguistic group and we're considered South Slavey. So we're related to, uh, it, I think in the States you call them Athabascan. And so we're part, you know, we're like cousins to the Apache and the Navajo. We're, we're basket weavers. That's like what we're known for. And so we would traditionally use like birch bark baskets and then you would use like porcupine quills to make like intricate flower designs. And so that sort of beadwork trickles down throughout all the nations and you see that incredible beadwork on the plains, hides and everything. I was curious to know more about the confluence of the two rivers and what the, that means for 
you and your nation because that's a sacred spot here where I'm from in, in the, where the Minneapolis and, and St. Paul, where the Minnesota and Mississippi rivers come together. It's called Bedote by the Dakota people and it's a sacred spot. Is is there a similar meaning, meaning for that confluence where you're from? For sure, that's sacred. Like that's where the great spirit resides. The great spirit sort of in anything, right? Like it could be water, earth, rock. Like we we understood like that we're all one universal energy. Well, let's uh, let's talk about the book then. Uh, tell me about Little Wolf and Nancy Swift Fox. Who are they, and what are the what's the situation in their lives? Oh, it's a little bit chaotic, isn't it? So how it got started is I'm trained as a historian. So through like actual academic training. And I was one time at a Musqueam feast. I think we previously sort of talked about this. And um, an elder mentioned to me that there was female warriors. And I, I hadn't come across that in my historical work. And when I actually started to seek it, I found that that was true. And so as I started to research um, the Battle of Little Bighorn and all the different sort of, um, you know, there's some big battles that happen in the American West. We have the Comanches, the Nez Perce, we have uh, the Apaches, and then we have the Sioux and the Cheyenne. And it would appear as though at least half were female. So we have Little Wolf, who's, you know, we're kind of at apocalyptic point in time in American history, we're post-Civil War manifest destiny they want to conquer what they consider to be wild right they consider that land wild it's not part of the united states yet and they want to conquer it and so they in order to conquer this wilderness they have to get rid of the indigenous inhabitants and so what i found really interesting is when you start going through all our linguistics like there is there's no word in any indigenous language for wild like that doesn't that doesn't, it doesn't exist. The closest thing we have is home. So now we have Little Wolf who kind of gets, you know, caught in the fray because they want to forcibly relocate them to reservations, which, you know, <laughs> if you're indigenous, you know. <laughs> so they, they're trying to dispossess the CU of this land and they're in doing so, they're breaking a couple of treaties, right? They're breaking the Fort Laramie Treaty and they're breaking, there's one other one. I can't think of the name. You know what the trouble is with a lot of these treaties is that even when you're researching it, they'll change the name of the treaty like six times. You know, yeah. it's like the Fort Laramie Treaty. It's the Black yeah. Hills Treaty. And then like Congress renames it something else. Or yeah, they're just known by several different names. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I, it, it would it would have broken a line of treaties if you, you know, go far enough back in history. So. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So they break like multiple treaties. And this is like only in 1876. And so they're breaking because they want that Black Hills. So the Black Hills, Custer discovers gold. Custer is, you know, the famed lieutenant colonel from the Civil War. He's a incredible fighter. He's led very successful pitch battles. And then they assign him to the Indian Wars. And so he kind of goes on a decade reign of terror. Everyone kind of knows like in that region who Custer is at this point. You know, he's got his notable curls. He he dresses like an indigenous person. We have the Battle of Washita where, you know, they took all the women and children prisoner and horrible things happened. And he takes, you know... You could say that he takes Monocita for a lover, but I 
think that would be very kind. <laughs> and, you know, it's rumored that they had a couple of children together. So this is a really, really complicated point in history. So we have Little Wolf kind of growing up through this, seeing this, they're, they're displaced, they're, you know, every time they kind of settle the indigenous groups at this point, they're sort of shuffled, you know, they're, they're pushed by the American military. And so they're constantly constantly moving like it's like being a refugee right in your own land and so they don't want to move on to the reservation because on the reservation you're no longer granted hunting rights for the most part so you have to become you know subsistent on the government and the government allocates them like beef sugar coffee and the rations it's highly corrupt so like people are starving to death because the Indian agents in charge of these reservations are reselling these goods to other people so the Indians aren't actually getting their rations, which was part of the treaty. So again, here we go, we're, we're breaking treaties. So they don't wanna go on to these, you know, these allocated parcels of land, which are incredibly small for the amount of people they're trying to put on there as well. So, you know, we have Sitting Bull, who was a medicine man and you have Crazy Horse, and you have a number of other chiefs, Gaul, who are sort of leading the charge of dissidents. And so they refuse, you know, to comply. They're like, no, like you didn't honor your treaty. So, you know, why, why should we? So we're just going to keep on, you know, subsisting on, you know, how we know how to subsist, which at this point in time, you know, the buffalo was huge for these people. And so Sheridan, you know, they, they led a massive genocide against the buffalo. And so you see those pictures where they're just driving the buffalo over the cliff. And so this is to break these nations backs, right? To make them, because they're taking away their food source, but it doesn't, they're like, well, well, we're gonna find other food. And so everything that they're doing to try to get these people online, it's sort of blowing up in their faces. And they recognize that the CU, the Cheyenne, they recognize that they're a very formidable enemy and they're, they're going strategically towards them. They're not just going willy nilly, like let's murder them all. Like it's, it's, it's gaining up to that where it goes full blown. Um, essentially like extinction, but it's not quite there yet. So there's still some, you know, pieces moving around the board. And then we just positioned that with uh, Nancy Swiftbox, who were at kind of the height of the American Indian movement. So this is in the 1970s. And so this is a big point in American history again, because you have, you know, the sort of black power movement at the same time, kind of, you know, this is Martin Luther King's just been assassinated. Like this is a huge, we have the Richard Nixon Watergate, we have the Vietnam War. So this, and so what, what fascinated about me, so they end up in the American Indian movement, they have a giant standoff on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Well, here we go. We got the same people that conducted the battle at Little Bighorn. We have the, you know, the massacre of Wounded Knee and now we have the Pine River Reservation standoff. Like these people are amazing. <laughs> this you like that's extraordinary well I, I you know that raises a lot of questions for me just hearing you talk about the history um you t you mentioned that you are a trained historian and uh, i i want to talk to you more about that because i write fiction and i came at it from this kind of the same journey maybe a similar journey as you i got an ma in history and then further down the line i got an mfa in creative writing and it was kind of for the same reasons because i write about the u.s dakota war that happened here in the state where i live in minnesota in the u.s um and i wanted to be able to find a way to bring some of this history to to more people and it's clear hearing you talk that you have a lot of knowledge about the history that happened you also seem to have 
um, a lot of strong feelings. It maybe brings up some some pain um, and trauma and things like that. But why then, and what led you to using all that, putting it together into a novel, and what are you what do you hope to accomplish with that? I hope to like for me bringing it into a novel. We kind of talked about it before. I'm a mother. And so it's making the history engaging to my children. Like as a historian, like you you read amazing documents that are, are very dry. <laughs> right? Like the average, you know, reader, if you're not a historian, like there aren't very many historians to begin with. Like you're not, you're never gonna, you know, access that information, that knowledge. And then I wanted to bridge the gap between that and oral storytelling. Like I've been told some amazing oral stories by our elders. And, and that's never even documented, right? That's just sort of passed down that you just like hear at random, you know, sitting in the kitchen having a cup of coffee. And then all of a sudden you just delve into this alternate version of history. So I wanted to find a medium where I could blend the two together. And, you know, I've I've always loved telling stories like that's that's just like in my blood. And I, I'm 100% that's from like our indigenous culture. Like that was really encouraged. And I, I you know, when I was six years old, when you're asked what you want to be, I'm like, oh, either a princess or a writer. <laughs> the princess thing didn't work out, so we had to go with plan B. Well, there's still time. <laughs> well, so when did you first get the idea in your mind that, that this is a story you wanted to tell? I just found it all really fascinating, even like General Custer, like I found really like he's not even a general. And we all, you know, even, you know, back then they're referring to him as a general. Like he wasn't that high up in the army. Like that's, that's a lot of charisma right? <laughs> to get like everyone to call you like a title that's not yours. It's like better than, you know, it's just really, really interesting. And even, you know, like so so complicated like everyone's like oh it's black and white but no there's a lot of gray area even when I was going through Custer's um I, I remember we spoke about this previously Custer's diaries like he's talking about so they're they're trying to renegotiate these treaties the Fort Laramie Treaty and that one other one that I can't think of the name might be Red Cloud one of them Red Cloud Agency anyways they had a big problem with what they called squawmen so these you know this is these were white colonists that married into these nations. And I was explaining this to another person, like we're matrilineal. So we, you know, at this point in time, you know, you would have, you would have taken on the woman's name and gone to her, you know, her community. Like that's just like that, that sort of got dismantled, right? Because the Eurocentric, you know, culture and society is patriarchal. So we, we, you know, this, you have this like flux of like world views, like sort of clashing on the planes. Like to me, that was really interesting. So now we're getting into like cultural identity. We're getting into like gender identity. We're getting into, you know, what like breaking down, like, and the, the problem is, is that these issues are so prevalent today. Like the, like none of this is fully resolved. Like this is still, um, you know, this is still affecting everybody. Like, you know, indigenous people in particular, but to everybody to some degree, where, you know, our ancestors understood this, like, like, we're all one, like, it's, you know, you can't, like, like, even the idea of race, like, that doesn't come in until the late 1800s with the study of eugenics. So, like, our ancestors had no concept of what this race was, like, that wasn't even in, like, their periphery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's something you talk about in an article that you wrote that, um, I took some notes on um, 
but but it was a it was a wonderful article where you talked about being one and the concept of race and you know trying to work together toward a, a solution because yeah this this history this legacy is still very real and has real consequences for us t today so um Thank you for taking part of the conversation and putting, <laughs> you know, putting a story out there. Yeah, and I got news for people: it's not working. <laughs> when you, you know, I've I've experienced some horrific things myself, my family, all for the simple fact that we're indigenous. <laughs> like it shouldn't, like that shouldn't be happening in 2023. Like it shouldn't even, like that shouldn't even be like. I, you know, something that the government feels that they have the right to implement. So, you know, I think like, I think just by talking about it, like it'll sort of sort itself out, you know, like your energy goes where your conscious flows sort of thing. Like if we're just like, okay, well, what's going on here? Like, how can we elevate this? You know, I think even the most traumatic parts of your life, there's something to benefit from it. Can you talk more about General Custer? Because uh, he's quite a figure uh, and uh, very controversial. Most now see him as as this uh, imperialist, you know, colonialist uh, power that that was was fighting uh, in the side of genocide. He was it was um, very he's seen in a negative, a much more negative light nowadays than he was previously. But nevertheless, you had to find a way to portray this man on the page. And I imagine you had some very strong feelings about him before you turned him into the character. What was that like for you to portray him on the page? And did you have to, did you find yourself maybe humanizing him in a way that you didn't want to, or maybe, maybe you feel uncomfortable? What was that like? Um, you know, I, I don't really judge anything. Like I'm open to like all experiences. I'm open to all perspectives. And so when I started going through Custer, like you could see that this person was like really egotistical, but he also had a profound respect for the indigenous people. Like he, he knew that they were very intelligent. He knew that they were fierce warriors. Like he, he almost fancied himself like a war chief. So when you start sort of, you know, I think if you go into it just being neutral and you don't judge things, like I think it gives a more rounded view of who he actually was. So it's, you know, we deal like, I, I think like what was worse for me than the Custer stuff, because when you get into his actual writing and you're like, oh, that's not that bad, is when you started going through like American and Canadian newspapers at that time and what they had to write about us. So it's like, what? Like, so that's like perspective manipulation, you know, where like these dirty savages, ignorant Indian, like that to me, like that was a thousand times worse than that what was going on with custard and even like you get into like Sherman and Sheridan so these are two generals that are sort of you know put in charge of taking care of like the Indian problem like even they had a profound respect for the indigenous tribes as I mentioned earlier so like you know even though they are leading the genocide like they're sort of just doing their job and so you kind of see this pattern throughout history like you have you know you have two sides that are pitched against each other and you know you get these epic battles when both sides just really good at doing their job i feel like despite uh you know what we're talking about here uh there is a a sense of optimism that you convey in your work and in who you are 
Can you talk about that optimism? And also, I think I read this from your article, you want to claim the Thunderbird's power back. What does that mean? The Thunderbird? We need to reconnect with the great spirit. Like it's, you know, people are sort of losing that. It's slipping. Like we need to understand like that's that, that's our creatorship. Like we can create any reality we want. Like we don't have to live in, you know, this poverty stricken genocidal shrapnel. Like we can raise out of that and we have to reconnect with that great spirit to get out of there. You have a, a bit of a startling title and uh, I, I love the cover as well. Um, can you talk about the cover and the title? So I worked on the cover with Neil at Greenleaf Press and I told him I wanted a cover that looked like Jack Sparrow and the American punk band Black Flag collaborated on a wanted poster for like, you know, one of the great chiefs, like for like Sitting Bull or Crazy Horse. And then Neil was just so amazing. Like he just like he understood it. Sometimes I think I'm a pretty abstract person. I can be complicated to understand. Neil just like got it. And so he sent me five covers and like everyone was like, oh, no, it's that one. And so that's um, Sitting Bull's headdress. Yeah, it's it's really great. And so he, he kind of nailed it right away after you took Yeah, asked for like that. straight away. We had like, you know, a series of like three emails and it was just like boom, he just got it. Yeah. We were talking a little bit before the interview about the publishing process. Uh this is your debut. So can you talk about what that's been like and how long it's been? Um is it a bit surreal? Or what have you learned? I think it's totally surreal finally seeing like a physical copy. Like even when you're going through it and you're going through the edits and everything, it doesn't seem like it's real until you actually get a book. You're like, whoa, like, it's a book. And as I mentioned to you earlier, like I went into it totally ignorant. Like I thought you just wrote a book and you're like, I published a book, but it's like way more complicated than that. It involves, you know, you end up having to go through like a couple edits and a proofread and then another proofread. And then there's like one more proofread. <laughs> and like, even like Neil had to like, like typeset all the stuff onto the page like that's something I didn't even think about like I thought like you know that like a program just like did that like I had no idea like you know it'd be like making a photocopy of something you just like put it in a printer and like it pops out a book but it's not like that at all and did you get any did you have any input on what the interior looked like no <laughs> <laughs> I guess I could have. I was like, yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> he would just send me a file that I would struggle to open. And he'd be like, how about is this? Like, I'm like, amazing. <laughs> and now as we talk today, the book hasn't come out yet. Uh, what are you looking forward to with, with the release and what kind of plans do you have for it? I think the thing I'm looking most forward to is sharing my history with everyone. Like, I don't think this should be just limited to indigenous people. Like, this is all our history. Like, if, you know, we you know indigenous people not only fought against the government we also fought alongside the american military right we have like uh, a really strong history of military involvement my mom was in the royal canadian air force as a pilot and you know I, in my novel, I write about Nancy's son who was a Vietnam vet and we had like, we weren't conscripted, like people on the reserve were signing up to go to this war and same with World War One and World War Two. So, I mean, it's, it's real. Uh, I want to know a little bit more about your craft. And, and I mentioned this already, you know, your background as a historian and then having to learn craft elements of fiction in order to, you know, be a storyteller. Um, 
I also read that you learned a lot from Wilfred Owen, T.S. Eliot, and Ernest Hemingway. So can you talk about uh, your background in in storytelling and how you you know developed from from your early years to to where you are now? I think like if you want to be a writer, you have to love to read and I'll read absolutely anything. And as I mentioned, like I had a pretty chaotic upbringing that's a little bit traumatic. And for me, like I was naturally into storytelling and reading was like the greatest escape. And what an amazing way to connect to, you know, a people in history that's not yours, but it's like you're living it. And that sort of modern time. So like, you know, the first half of the 20th century, like that really resonated with me. And those writers that you mentioned, like they were going through a lot of chaos, right? They were going through World War One and World War Two. you know, they, they fought, they were seeing violence at an unprecedented level. And the way that they were able to portray that in their writing is so eloquent. Like it's not aggressive. It's not like, you know, they're not condemning they're not hating like they're just sort of observing and so that's something that I wanted to be able to do as well I think that's that's great um, I, I've got just a, a couple more things I want to ask you um, you write about filling in genocidal gaps in history as um, as historical fiction novelists we all know about filling in gaps when it comes to marginalized people or women not having their stories heard and not being documented. Um, so what does that mean for you, you know, filling in those genocidal gaps? And is it part of your oral history then that seeps in that way? Oh, 100%, right? I think, I think the greatest thing we can all do is honor these people who fell. Just to remember them, I think, is, you know, you've already taken one step towards healing. Yeah, definitely. But, 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 like what, uh, is there certain information that you have to fill in with context or uh, how much are you able to learn versus how much do you have to just fill in from what you know about what happened here in Minnesota, what happened to the indigenous people populations in South America, what happened throughout people that have been colonized? Do you know what I mean in that sense? Are you talking about like, between like knowing and like archival research? Well, right, like the the research that, that you know about the, the events versus uh, the, the feelings that you're trying to portray and the, the real genocidal history, you know, behind what those events were. For sure, because when you read from it from an academic perspective in like a university, like you don't get that sort of heartbreak that it must have been that they went through like you know you kind of and, and it's not just indigenous history like you read all history that way it's just like oh yeah 20 million people died in russia in world war ii <laughs> like next page like it's like whoa 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 like, like let's back this up a little bit like what what did that feel like for those people like and by feeling perhaps it resonates deeper into your subconscious and maybe we won't repeat those mistakes like if you kind of read from it from such a neutral you know, unempathetic way, at least that's what I found, you know, that, you know, it just, you're just like, oh, I can just go on with my day. And it's like, well, no, like, there, these are, these are some really traumatic events. And again, like going back to those writers from the early 20th century, like they understood that, like they, they got that, you know, like their ability to portray that heartbreak made those wars resonate with people 
on a much grander scale, right? If you mentioned like World War One or World War Two, like people have some sort of fiction context for that, whether it's, you know, Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, you know, like the film 1917, like that's a more recent one that was amazing. Like, you know, we're Indigenous people, we don't really have, you know, our, our wars aren't sort of portrayed in that light. So I was sort of, you know, taking, you know, going back to like, you know, Hemingway, like farewell to arms, like, you know, how, how could we sort of, you know, write for like a whom the bell tolls? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really well said. I think that that's a great, a great goal. <laughs> it's a lofty one. <laughs> yeah. Well, and not to get too deep into it, but you know, earlier in in our talk here, you did say, you did kind of say we're not we're not getting very far, people. Um, and we talked a little bit about optimism. Um, so what what keeps you going? No, I believe in humanity. Like I don't I don't think like you know oh the white people are to blame. Like I don't think that's the problem at all. Like in Canada, it's the government like without a doubt it's the canadian government and they're still doing some really really genocidal things now like they're forcibly sterilizing indigenous women against their will like that's eugenics and so it's you know again like we're going back to these issues like i but be i believe in humanity like i believe ultimately everyone wants to have you know a happy and content life like i don't believe anyone would really wish ill against somebody else mm -hmm. I'm a glass half full sort of person. <laughs> well, we need people like that. <laughs> Tell me about Apparently Transparent, your podcast. Yeah, we haven't gotten that quite up and going yet because it's been a little bit crazy in my house, but it is going to get going in the new year. And, you know, I want to kind of get into like all issues. Like for me, something that struck me really interesting when I was doing archival research for this novel so as a historian, and you're kind of asking about like my process, like I research until I'm like blue in the face to like, I have other writers telling me to stop researching. They're like, you just need to write. <laughs> you're like, we can't like, you know, I'll have like, I'll have like stacks and stacks of documents and stuff that I've written and books. Like I I probably own close to a thousand books. I remember we were talking when you were in your office, I think, and you have like just as many books as me. Like I just mm -hmm. love all that sort of information. But um, one of the, oh, I, I don't know if we talked about it, but I did talk about it on the drunken pen. Almost all our creation stories seem to be like alien in origin. And then there's Artie Sixkiller Clark, who was a professor at Montana State University. And she compiled like a huge amount of documentation of like, you know, these aliens. And where, where I'm from, it's, you know, we call it Umaria. And we were like star seated here from the Little Dipper. And so, you know, these stories are sort of, you know, fantastic, like the Thunderbird and people just like, you know, because they're not ready to hear that sort of version of it. They're like, no, that's not true. And they just like shut it to the back of their mind. But to me, like that, that opened up like a whole nother like level to like the spirituality and like where all these different stories come from. And so like just it's just like for me it's been so fascinating so like the academic research led to like the oral stories which led to like a whole different layer to the history and then you know kind of like melding that together so on the podcast I want to go into sort of those more abstract um, layers to history that have sort of been you know not documented mm. that sounds very interesting and we'll look forward to hearing it 
Yeah. What are you, are, are you working on any, a new novel? I'm working currently on Geronimo. <laughs> so if you think this one's violent, <laughs> Geronimo is incredibly interesting. And he worked in connection with the medicine woman, Lozen. And so Lozen, you know, the same way that these female warriors were sort of, you know, eradicated from history. So is Lozen. Like, it's hard to find any information on her. I managed to find um, several, like, firsthand interviews that were documented with her. But um, she's very beautiful too. There was a couple of photos of her and you're like, whoa, like that was a good looking woman. So she ends up dying of tuberculosis when they forcibly relocated them to Florida. And so the people that lived through the Battle of Little Bighorn, the American military men who lived through that kind of get reassigned to um, the American Southwest down where the Apaches are. And Geronimo just leaves them on a chase for like 20 years. And it kind of goes into the fantastic as well, because here we have a man who could apparently, you know, summon the thunder. And then you have Lozen, who's clearly remote viewing. And so they're able to, you know, kind of get around getting captured. Well, that sounds like a, a great story. And I'm glad that you're going to, going to tell it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel like Geronimo is kind of like Custer, like he like really like provokes like something in people that's not necessarily positive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's people who have kind of worked their way into just the, the pop culture. Uh, uh, you know, you, you forget the, the roots of who they who they actually were and what they stood for. And yeah, so I, I think it's important to rediscover them through historians and, and authors like you yeah well his like his wife his three kids and his mother were all slaughtered while they were sleeping and so he comes back to find them dead in the teepee and he just like mentally unhinges like this is like and it's just like heartbreaking like he talks about like you know screaming and crying for like days on end and then he goes on like you know this homicidal rampage that lasts like a decade <laughs> Well, I'll be interested interested to see how you handle that. <laughs> I'm interested to see how I handle that. <laughs> I'll have to channel my inner Wilford Owen. <laughs> well, Angie, congratulations on your novel, All I See is Violence. And thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. 